Some people say that I threw my brain away That I'm illogical and don't have much to say Some people say that it's foolish to believe In what we cannot say So what is saved? Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to engage with Molinism. I've solidified some more thoughts since the last time I did an episode on this, and I'm going to be presenting some of my newer arguments here. It is going to be another lengthy episode, so we're going to get right to it. As always, if you appreciate this content or would like to become a sponsor, please uh, go to the blog, click on Become a Sponsor link, or find us on Patreon and become a sponsor there. If you can't afford to or don't really want to, that's fine, but please head on over to at least to iTunes and leave a rating and a review. So with that, we're going to jump right into this episode and deal with metaphysics and the failure of Molinism. Enjoy the show. Definitions. Number one, natural knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that God has of necessary truths that are true independent of his will or decree about himself. Examples, one plus one equals two, all bachelors are married, no squares are circle, etc. This would also include God's knowledge of himself and his own attributes. Number two, free knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that God has of contingent truths, that is, propositions that are true given God's will and decree in the actual world. Examples, the sky is blue, the universe was created by God, etc. Number three, middle knowledge. According to the Molinist, this is the kind of knowledge that God has of counterfactuals of worlds that he could have created but did not create. These are facts that could have been but are not. Example, Had Tyler had been born with two X chromosomes, then he would have been born female. Had Mozart died at birth, he would not have composed music, etc. Number four, counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. These are propositional facts about what free creatures would have chosen to do in other possible worlds or could do but do not do in the actual world. Claimed benefits of Molinism. Number five, Preserve some version of libertarian free choice without substantially sacrificing divine sovereignty. Number six, due to number five, that Molinism preserves substantive human responsibility. Number seven, due to five and six, can give the most robust solutions to the problems of evil and suffering without a perceived blame shift to God. Number eight, Preserve God's unfulfilled yet genuine desire that all humanity should be saved apart from the reform scheme of the two wills of God. Here, this is God's only will and is defeated by the free choice of man to freely reject God. Thus, God saves the most that he can without violating their will. Number nine, presents a better explanation for the supposed problem of the unevangelized, where God would have arranged all those 
who would not believe in any possible world to be born in areas and times where the gospel would never be preached in their lifetime, where the pearls would never be cast before the swine, so to speak. Note, <clears throat> this is not universal to all Molinists, especially those prior to the work of Alvin Plantinga and William Lane Craig, but this is common enough view among current Molinists to be advanced. Introduction. My major objections to Molinism seem to me at least to be a development in the discussion of Molinism, which has held out by many Christian apologists as a potential way to reconcile God's sovereignty and creaturely freedom and give a robust response to the problems of evil and suffering. While I think there is much fruit to be found in attacking the Molinistic concepts of middle knowledge via objections like the grounding objections, in which God's aseity is defended against his being contingent in any way on external truth makers, and I make just such an argument in this episode, I think far more progress can be made in the case against Molinism by attacking the oft-unstated metaphysical assumptions of the system. That is, in addition to confronting the Molinistic view of what God knows, how God knows it, if God really knows it, when he knows it, etc., in order to expose several major problems with Molinism, we ought also explore other issues, such as the nature of the cosmic creative process and its causal impacts. If the decrees of God and how they relate to the, spe uh, spe the species of knowledge and omniscient being like God would have, the nature of humans logically prior to creation and if such concepts entail causal properties, and the logical implications of Molinism, which may run directly counter to its stated propositions and benefits, and so forth. It should also be stated from the outset of this paper that in the attempted refutation of Molinism to follow, I am assuming a desire on the reader's part to remain broadly orthodox, that is, specifically to hold to historic conceptions of the nature of God, such as omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, simple, immutable in his nature, and so forth, and to hold a view of the inerrancy, inspiration, and authority of scripture on such issues, whether in weaker or stronger forms. Therefore, it can be shown that if it can be shown that some aspect of Molinism is in direct contradiction to scripture, or if a result or entailment of Molinism is that God is made sufficiently not free, or less free than his creation, or in some regard that when we shake Molinism, something like open theism pops out the other side, then it will have been proven that Molinism cannot be an option for the Christian concerned with maintaining historic biblical orthodoxy. One final note should be made that the arguments contained here are in their distilled and compact forms. What follows is a cumulative case argument against Molinism with many lines of argumentation introduced in germ form. Until further work can be done on some of these, many of the arguments in are um, many of the arguments are in a direction of the refutation of Molinism. While I think Molinism fails at the, even the most basic level, and we need not venture too far into the woods to expose numerous problems with the system, it would be far too bullish to assume that there are not excellent minds on the other side of the issue attempting to present rejoinders to the kinds of objections laid out here. However, at this point, I simply find none of them satisfactory, let alone compelling. Number one mere Molinism. In this section, I will argue that what Molinists like my friend Tim Stratton and others call quote-unquote mere Molinism is either misleading or demands the mere Molinist to assume numerous unstated positions or else it dies the death of a thousand qualifications to become so vague that it loses anything inherently Molinistic about it. 
Therefore, my estimation is that current attempts to distill Molinism down to mere Molinism in order to make it more palatable to a wider audience, specifically to make inroads into broadly reformed circles, are so far unsuccessful and may even be tactically need to be reevaluated. Mere Molinists such as Stratton have made numerous alterations to what content is the necessary core of Molinism, such that if someone affirms that content, they can be confidently considered part of the Molinist camp. In an article in August 2016, Stratton argued that the two pillars of mere Molinism are a. God eternally possesses middle knowledge, b. Humans possess libertarian free will. Now, without impugning my friend, the list was composed before his apparent interest in trying to gain more reformed or Calvinistic support for mere Molinism, and since that emphasis has changed, so has his view of what the core pillars of Molinism have as well. Under this original list, no consciously or consistently reformed or Calvinistic believer could affirm mere Molinism. Not only are terms such as middle knowledge and libertarian free will left undefined and undefended, if they are ever defined consistently with historic Molinism, they would be outright rejected, which we'll see below. In addition, libertarian free will is antithetical to reformed and Calvinistic anthropology and soteriology. The benefit of this list is that it does seem to be closer to the sine qua non of Molinism as believed and detailed by apologetical Molinists. I think the desire to broaden the reach of Molinism into more theological circles, again, specifically reformed ones, is where mere Molinism has problems, even being Molinistic, as we'll see. In January of 2018, there was an attempt by Terry Hollyfield, a contributor to Stratton's blog, to add a third pillar to mere Molinism, and he recommended it publicly to Stratton. This third pillar was C, God is Sovereign. As if the original list was not problematic enough for anyone already skeptical or dismissive of Molinism, throwing in such a vague third pillar becomes and comes across to those familiar with the intramural debates between Reformed Christians and Molinists to be just a rhetorical hedging, a kind of, hey, we believe God is sovereign too, since a lot of complaints against Molinism are that it diminishes God's sovereignty. At this point, given A and B, any Reformed Christian reading this, or really any critic of Molinism, middle knowledge, and libertarian free will, for there are many objectors from many camps, would argue that C is one of the very things that is abandoned by affirming A and B, let alone both. Molinists would obviously disagree with that assessment, but it's not clear why affirming sovereignty so undefined would be something unique or necessary for Molinism. For surely one could affirm Molinism and suppose that it's God's desire to create libertarian free agents, and as such, he gave up some or much of his sovereignty to do so. Why would such a view not be Molinistic? I see no conceptual reason to think that it would not be. At this point, I'm unaware of any private or public discussion on this point between Hollyfield and Stratton, but Stratton never seemed to adopt C in his future publications, possibly for some of the reasons as con uh, considerations that I just stated. However, in June 2018, Stratton then, likely in the face of some pushback and a desire to widen the mere Molinist umbrella, which, to be honest, are both admirable and reasonable motiv motivations, I don't fault him for that, altered the two pillars of mere Molinism. 
in a conversation I had with him, there were a couple different iterations of the list, at one point including something even as broad as God simply being omniscient. But by the time he went to print on his blog, later that year, he had landed on these two propositions as the necessary core of mere Molinism. D. Humans sometimes have libertarian, limited libertarian free will. E. God has middle knowledge. Now, we can see here a softening of both of the original premises by Stratton. While the alteration of B to D I think was intentional, I'm not sure what benefit is gained from A to E. And surely Stratton still believes that God possesses middle knowledge from eternity past as a necessary part of his nature. The simplification from B to D then appears to be a conceptual change, while the move from A to E is likely nothing more than a shorthand for convenience, and one that we can grant for the sake of expediency. The objections to both of these pillars will come as we progress through this paper. However, what we can point out here is how much of Molinism is actually missing from these two pillars. Even if we were to grant these two propositions for the sake of argument, this would not get us to the fully developed Molinism that would be helpful in apologetical issues, the thing which Molinists tout as precisely the benefit of holding to a Molinistic theological position. In fact, it's not even clear that the concepts which may have apologetical value flow necessarily from D and E independently. Absent is the concept of God choosing to actualize from the list of feasible worlds, that he would choose that one maximizes human salvation while mitigating the amount of suffering and evil, the principles and concepts needed to divide human culpability from any kind of determinism, and so on and so forth. To avoid unsubstantiated rebukes, let me here expressly state the kind of most salvific world should not be confused with best possible world semantics, as William Lane Craig and others have ably argued against best possible world conceptions. In addition, let me also state here that nowhere do I or will I accuse the system of making God's knowledge, any kind of it, a causal condition such that God's knowing X is what determines X. Criticisms of Molinism are often rebuffed with such rejoinders, but I'm not making either claim, and so any attempt to, to give that rejoinder will simply be irrelevant to the arguments contained herein. Other features missing from mere Molinism are issues surrounding trans-world depravity and why there is condemnation to the unevangelized, the attempts to ground middle knowledge not in prescience or foresight, but as a brute fact of immediate knowledge, and even how this would relate to issues like regeneration. We'll address this towards the end of this episode, but let me here point out to begin with, just to get your thought processes going, that Stratton and others have argued that God could suspend limited libertarian freedom in the case of monergistic salvation which just begs the question, why then God wouldn't do that in all cases? We would see that as an attempt to circumvent one major reformed objection to Molinism, having to do with the Ordo Salutis. And it has the net effect of removing even the possibility of Molinism successfully accomplishing its main apologetical promise, the freedom of choice to choose or reject God, i.e. to be saved or damned, is ultimately due to libertarian free choice of man, and thus God actualizes the most salvific world. This would not be an objection to Molinism proper, but would be to anyone who wants to truncate Molinism to non-soteriological free choices. Again, we'll develop this more at the end of the article.
All in all, there is much to Molinism that is not subsumed under mere Molinism, nor necessarily entailed by it, that the proposed benefits of the system seem all to lie beyond the confines of mere Molinism anyways is really a problem for the distilling of mere Molinism. This means that even if we were to grant the two pillars of mere Molinism, it does not seem to follow that Molinism proper, nor any of its proposed apologetical benefits, would follow from it. So what benefit is there in the current attempts to distill it down? This means that we can argue that while mere Molinists, who, may, who, who is making such a mere Molinist argument, may not be dishonest, the rhetorical strategy is that of a kind of bait and switch, where the full substance of Molinism is needed if it is to accomplish its strategic value in apologetical questions, is actually smuggled in through a lexical backdoor. Simply put, if it's not necessarily entailed by the two terms of mere Molinism, then to accept mere Molinism does not make one a Molinist. It's trying to get the reader to swallow far more than they would be willing to chew by getting them to adopt the label and self-identify as a Molinist. By analogy, we can think of the theonomy debates that will be familiar to many of my Reformed audience. Sorry to those who aren't Reformed that aren't familiar with this intramural debate. It may be helpful to think of this like we would think of the difference between theonomy with a capital T and theonomy with a lowercase t, where capital theonomy is a specific and well-defined theological position concerning the role of the Mosaic law in our present church age, cultures, and political systems. This system believes that the Mosaic law, in exhaustive detail, including the penology of the civil code of Israel, should be the law code of any sufficiently Christianized nation, and that Christians should want this. This is why theonomy, capital T, is often, though not necessarily, linked with postmillennialism. The argument is often made by capital theonomists for what we could call mere theonomy, my term, not theirs, wherein any Christian who loves God's law and thinks it should have any role in the thought and life of the Christian in the public sphere is thus a theonomist. Here, we can see that while many of us may think that the Mosaic law has a role to play, especially Reformed Christians who employ the triplicate use of the law for the church and the, and the Christian in our private and public lives, and to the general equity of all God's law, even the civil law of Israel, it does not follow that we hold the capital theonomic position with the Mosaic law in mind, in exhaustive detail, including penology and the civil law of Israel, and that it ought to be, in a one-to-one -one sense, the law of Christian nations today. It's a massive bait-and-switch to say that anyone who loves God law, God's law and thinks it should serve some function in the church age are de facto theonomists, merely because theonomists can lexically pare down their position to loving God's law and thinking it should play a role in Christian nations. This difference can then be represented by the difference between capital theonomy and lowercase theonomy. The same can be seen between capital Molinism and mere Molinism. If we even grant the lexical paring down of Molinistic concepts that have been proposed, not only do I have problems with both of Stratton's proposed doctrines needed to be a mere Molinist, and as such think even that should be rejected, unlike the lowercase theonomy in the example above, but it seems obvious that to adopt those two doctrines in no way will ensure one will go forward and affirm the positions of capital Molinism as a whole theological position. 
Yet, many may have been convinced to start claiming the name of Molinism and advance the view broadly because they have been convinced that if they believe the two mere Molinist doctrines, they just are Molinists. Number two, grounding objections and the incoherence of middle knowledge. Here, I will argue the simplest point that merely asserting God has middle knowledge as a feature of his omniscience is not an adequate explanation for how or what God knows. This serves as a simple assertion of brute fact, but while trying to nuance it in such a way as to traffic a kind of new third knowledge into theology proper that is needed to make the argument and the position work. That is, it rejects previously held grounding explanations, while at the same time also eschewing the need to explain their novel view of a third species of knowledge, in order to bring in a new concept to divine omniscience. This kind of maneuver should be exceedingly suspect. It not only removes warrant for robust understanding of omniscience long held by theologians, but it also brings in a brand new concept under the guise of not needing to give any grounding explanation at all. I wonder if the Molinists would allow such maneuvers elsewhere in theological or philosophical discourse. This is almost the same issue when Christian apologists would have with moral non-cognitivists, or those who affirm some kind of irreducible normativity in ethical questions, that positing an unwarranted brute fact in order to, or that simply do, avoid explanatory satisfactory foundations simply cannot be philosophically acceptable. I offer a solution to the grounding objection available upon reformed and even non-Molinistic theistic conceptions that God does not possess middle knowledge unless, by middle knowledge, we simply mean that God knows what would have been the case had he decreed it. This would be a radical departure from the historic Molinistic conception of middle knowledge, however, and would mean that God has exhaustive counterfactual knowledge precisely because God knows that whatever he decrees to come to pass will, in fact, come to pass. On historic Protestant conceptions of God's natural and free knowledge, God's decrees ground his free knowledge, and he has natural knowledge that whatever he decrees would come to pass, i.e. would be true. Therefore, he has absolute exhaustive knowledge of creation because he has decreed what comes to pass, and he knows what he has decreed. This entails that God can also know that had he decreed something else, some other fact or set of facts, that that fact God can also know that he had, decre had he decreed something else, some other fact or set of facts would be the case. Therefore, God's exhaustive counterfactual knowledge can all be prefaced by the subjunctive, had I decreed, and is just an aspect of God's free knowledge, rooted in his natural knowledge of the efficacy of his own decrees in the worlds that he would, could, or did actualize. We do not need to invent a third species of knowledge, especially when we'll see that doing so creates an insurmountable grounding issue and gains us nothing, or even creates further theological problems, as we'll see as we continue throughout this episode. However, on Molinistic conceptions of middle knowledge, there are no truth makers for counterfactuals, and thus no truths to be known. Since God has not actualized a world yet, it's not clear what truth-makers could exist which would constitute God's middle knowledge. 
Since the truth makers that would be needed to make the propositions true, either God's knowledge of what he would decree or his knowledge of his degrees of the actual world, grounded in his natural knowledge of the efficacy of his degrees, or some abstractly existing possible world that would ground God's knowledge, middle knowledge amounts to the claim of brute and yet inexplicable knowledge that had X happened, then X would have happened, and God knows that. Possibly, God would have such tautologist knowledge, but that would not be the same as knowing what could have happened, and cannot provide a grounding explanation for God's middle knowledge. Would the Molinist and the advocate of libertarian freedom accept this form of argumentation from the compatibilist? Imagine that the compatibilist simply said that humans are free, and God meticulously and irreconcilably determined all things is simply a brute fact, and no adequately foundational explanation is needed, and no truth makers for them is possible. Would such an appeal to pure antimony be a welcomed argument? Imagine the incredulity to such rhetoric, and yet this is precisely what is provided in the service of defending Molina's invention of this third species of knowledge. Therefore, not only does the historic Protestant uh, reform position have a better explanation for God's exhaustive counterfactual knowledge, which avoids the absence of truth makers, but it also does so in a philosophically responsible way, which does not eschew explanatory foundations. We will see next that Molina's concept of middle knowledge appears to entail a rejection of the orthodox view of the aseity of God, where God, in his, eternal, in his eternal and essential attributes, is not contingent or reliant on anything outside of himself. Number three, grounding objection and the aseity of God. Here I will briefly argue that on Molinism, God's middle knowledge would be logically dependent on the personal agency and contingent free will decisions of yet-to-be-created persons, what are called counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. While the Molinists will recoil at the objection and say that it is not that God, quote, looks through the corridors of time, end quote, to learn anything, and will protest at what they think is a procedural oversight, the issue is not one of epistemic procedure or process. Remember, I'm not saying that what God knows, therefore his knowledge determines it, or that he looks through the corridors of time and learns something. The issue which this objection raises is that God's middle knowledge, which he possesses before creation, and then possibly his free knowledge, given how it's defined in relation to middle knowledge, would be knowledge about the free will decisions of personal agents. If the truth makers for those propositions that he knows do not rely on his own decrees or anything internal to God, then the truth makers must rely on some aspect or concept of the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. This means that the truth makers of the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom uh, of the middle knowledge of God, and as such, might be logically prior to God's middle knowledge. This is a clear violation of the aseity of God. A Molinist may protest that the content of God's knowledge is not the same as the nature of God's knowledge. That is, that God's nature is to possess middle knowledge, and that he has this independently of anything outside of himself even if the content of what God knows is determined by truth-makers outside of himself and his decrees. The problem with this rejoinder is twofold. First, 
God would only possess middle knowledge in virtue of the content of his knowledge of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. That is, if there were no counterfactuals of creaturely freedom to be known, then God would not have the attribute of middle knowledge in the first place, because there would be nothing to know. This seems to entail that this kind of knowledge in nature is dependent upon something outside of himself and thus is a nature and not a content problem. Second, it's not clear then that if we grant the concept of the relation of truth maker to content and content to nature, that it would not equally make God's free knowledge contingent upon the actual world rather than on God's decrees of the actual world. This means that Molinism actually appears to double down on the Asadi problem which middle knowledge arises and raises the same problem for free knowledge. Finally, in order to escape the force of this argument, some Molinists will push back that aseity should not be considered part of an orthodox conception of God. They see the problem, but rather than fixing it, they just want to excise aseity from one of the orthodox concepts. This strategy seems hopelessly flawed, and one that we would not permit in any other attribute of God. Should we allow theologians to start picking apart aspects of God simply because they make their proposed theology false or problematic or inconsistent? Should we allow the open theist to start picking apart aspects of God's omniscience and say that exhaustive future knowledge should not be part of an orthodox concept of God because it contradicts their theology? I see no reason to accept this manner of response. Number four, personal agency prior to persons. This will be a more brief statement of what is entailed of the objection above regarding the aseity of God, where given the removal of God's decrees as the determinative factor in the truth makers of counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, and that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom would be logically prior to God's middle knowledge, this seems to entail that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom must be true independently of God from eternity past and thus exist and are true prior to the actual creation of any of the persons which with the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom would concern. This means that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom exist not only independently of God, but also exist independently of any of the personal agents with the creaturely freedom to make those decisions which constitute the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. To my mind, it seems utterly incoherent to say that the choices of agents exist logically prior to the existence of the agents which make those choices. Number five, calling foul on feasibility. In this section, I will be arguing that while logical possibility and feasibility are coherent concepts, when it comes to issues within creation and the actual world, where we have limited resources that can restrict and impinge upon options, I'm not sure how any coherent concept of feasibility as a limiting factor for logical possibility can exist prior to God actualizing any world, especially given God's omnipotence. If God had not created or instantiated any logically possible world, then it seems that any logically possible world would be feasible for him to create due to no limiting constraints on his omnipotent being outside of himself even existing prior to God actualizing them. This means that in principle, the Molinist trying to make such a distinction would be in the awkward position of needing to state that there is a set of logically possible worlds that is not actually logically possible, a pure contradiction. 
the restrictions of feasibility seem to only constrain options in actually substantiated worlds, where already determined features exist to restrain other options. I will attempt to show why this is simply not the case with, the wor with worlds possible for God to create prior to his decree to create any specific one. Okay, at this point in the episode, I have to let you know that I'm going to be using a lot of variables, so it may be hard to keep up, but I'm going to try to go slow. Imagine world W1, in which all humans, numerically identical or greater than the number of humans in the actual world, freely choose to accept God and be saved, or where Adam never fails, nor any of his progeny, or some other such condition where all humanity is saved, such that all humans created spend an eternity in blessed fellowship with God. This logically possible world, which is surely strictly logically possible, means that if Molinism were true, God would have true middle knowledge or counterfactual knowledge on reform views that, quote, if I were to create W1, then all humanity would spend a blessed eternity with me. There's no reason to object that W1 is not strictly logically possible. That is, it entails nothing that is logically contradictory or illogical. So we can ask, why would God not choose to actualize this world? The Molinist often comes back with something like, well, W1 may be strictly logically possible, but may not be feasible a feasible world because maybe in a world with that many people, not everyone will freely believe. But notice what they've done. Rather than showing how W1 is not feasible, they have to change the features of W1 such that not everyone believes. Well, that world would not be W1, but possibly W2 or W3 or some other world such that it has different properties than W1. They have not shown how a strictly logical, logically possible world like W1, which again is strictly logically possible, would not be feasible to actualize without arguing that W1 would have to have some other attributes of some other world that is not W1. The Molinists would also need to justify how God could not know the strictly logical fact via his middle knowledge that if I were to create W1, then all humanity would spend a blessed eternity with me. Yet, that is precisely what would be present for the world if it was strictly logically possible. This attempted maneuver is obviously an ad hoc attempt to move the conceptual goalposts. In addition, the Molinists would need to explain precisely why, in principle, some certain strictly logically possible world of free creatures is unfeasible due to human freedom, but other such worlds are not when the metaphysics of their existence, i.e. the principles of human freedom, logical possibility, and the relationship of God's knowledge to his creation, are exactly identical. The only difference is quantitative. The number of people saved in one world is higher than the other. Why should this merely quantitative difference make a qualitative or principle change to the role that human freedom can play in making a logically possible world unfeasible for an omnipotent God to actualize? I see no reason, given that W1 is logically possible and that God is omnipotent and not limited on resources or possibility outside of his own nature and desires, that W1 would not be a feasible world to create. Yet, once this is shown, Molinism's benefit in theology and apologetics vanishes and becomes unfeasible itself. In other words, the simple point of this objection is that I see no ad hoc 
sorry, no non-ad hoc reason to accept that anything that is logically possible would not be feasible to God, logically prior to his decree to actualize any world. It seems obviously true that there could be a greater world, which we'll call G, whereby greater we mean that none are lost to an eternity apart from the love of God, and where the number of persons that in that world are the same or greater than what is present in A, the actual world. The rejoinder is that that somehow G is not feasible for God to create because maybe in any possible world with sufficiently free persons, some will freely choose to disobey and reject God. However, again, this rejoinder suffers numerous fatal problems and is rather, it seems to me, easily defeated. Therefore, this use of feasibility is again hopelessly ad hoc. There's no reason to believe that such a world would be logically possible but unfeasible unless we already presuppose the libertarian free will that the Molinist wants to, us to assume as true and are willing to effectively adopt open theism. The assertion about why such a world is unfeasible assumes libertarian free will is what prevents the world from being feasible rather than demonstrating it. This is special pleading of the worst kind. We can give the following reductio ad absurdum argument such as the following. It seems obviously true that if God has middle knowledge of free choices in G, that's the great all-saved world, and A, the actual world, such that God knew before the decree to create, quote, if I actualize G, all humans will repent and believe on me and will all be saved, in, end quote, in the same way that God knew of the actual world, quote, if I actualize A, then X number of, of humans will believe and be saved, end quote, then G is logically possible in the same way that A was prior to God's decree to actualize it. And as such, God could have actualized G just as much as God was able to actualize A. The metaphysical relationship between the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom of G and of A to the middle knowledge and free knowledge of God prior to his decree to create the actual world is identical. Not only would the objection that human freedom may prevent G shift the goalpost and alter G to be a world other than G by not instantiating the, the counterfactuals of creaturely freedom of G, but swapping them for others of some other world that is not G, but it ignores that this world, that this would actually make any world with sufficiently free agents unknowable and opaque to God. This is because on this kind of response, counterfactuals of creaturely freedom could differ substantively from the facts of any world known by God's middle knowledge. That is, if God knew via middle knowledge, quote, if I actualize P, then Y will obtain by the free decisions of persons therein, end quote. And yet an objection to that could be, quote, well, it may be possible for any world with significantly free creatures that that world is not feasible for God, end quote. Then this means that God could never have true or reliable knowledge of any possible world, for it would be built into such a view that counterfactuals of creaturely freedom could differ from the facts of the actual world known by God's middle knowledge before decreeing them. However, that's just a brand of open theism. 
Once the ad hoc rejoinder of feasibility fails, then the question against the supposed apologetic value of Molinism is easily raised. If God desires all to be saved, and yet to do so freely, why not actualize G? Without the resources of the two wills of God available to reform theologian, the Molinist is now in a position where number eight above is not only not a benefit, but is now in fact a liability of the theory. God could have actualized G and yet did not, which seems inexplicable given eight. In addition to this, we could present another reductio argument against Molinism. I take it as a matter of fact that God would need to strongly actualize whatever world he brings into existence as the actual world precisely because there are no ulterior means or resources yet in existence for God to use to weakly actualize any other world and to assume them merely to possess uh, to, to assume them merely to possess them to make the case for weak actualization is an obvious case of begging the question and would vi- violate parsimony now Suppose that it may in fact not be logically possible for God to strongly actualize a world whereby his actualization of that world does not in some way determine the decisions of the personal agents in his creation, unless he abandons all sovereignty and knowledge of that world before creating it. Thus he creates it blind and gives up parts of his essential attributes, a kind of kenosis acceptable to heretics and open theists the world over. This would mean that no worlds containing sufficiently free agents in the libertarian sense would be possible for God to strongly actualize, unless they are an entirely random, uncontrolled, and unknown to God. Since middle knowledge means that God has exhaustive true counterfactual knowledge of all possible worlds, then God would then have no knowledge of any feasible world since they would not be possible for him to know any details about, since they would not be feasible for him to actualize without giving up his sovereignty and his foreknowledge. So there would be no fact corresponding to, quote, if God actualized world X, then P would be true. Thus, God, therefore, would not have middle knowledge. So if Molinism is true, then it appears to be the case that Molinism cannot be true. This one final injurious implication of this ad hoc maneuver to make some logically possible worlds unfeasible for God seems to entail that God then can have no true knowledge, middle or free, of any possible world or the actual world, and thus we're left with a view of omniscience of God that is the same or very similar to that of the open theist. Now, surely the Molinist would want some justification for the denial of feasibility to the worlds that God could know and be sovereign over and yet not be able to actualize. There would need to be some argument that there is a logical constraint on God's omnipotent creative abilities at that point that does not beg the question or engage in ad hoc special pleading. This would be needed for the Molinist as well to argue that W1 is logically possible but not feasible without begging the question of libertarian free will and even why libertarian free will would make W1 unfeasible but not any other world such as the actual world, which also contains libertarian freedom. For why would libertarian freedom make W1 unfeasible but would not make countless other worlds, even the actual world, unfeasible? Couldn't we just say that it may not be possible in any world with a sufficient number of libertarian free agents for anyone to freely choose to believe in God, and as such, God had to strongly actualize a compatibilistic world to have anyone be saved? 
How does an unfeasible world, prior to God's decree to create any world, not result in such a world being necessarily impossible, thus logically impossible? This objection seems to entail that the Molinists would argue that some world is logically possible, but unfeasible, therefore logically impossible for God to create. So, it's logically possible, but it's not logically possible. We could then amend this to this the following argument. Number one, if God is omnipotent, then God can do all logically possible things. Number two, God is omnipotent. Number three, God can do all logically possible things. Number four, it is logically possible for God to create world G. Number five, God can create world G. It may be left to any theological system, Molinistic, Reformed, Arminian, SBC Traditionalist, or any other, to explain why and how God could desire some state of affairs that he does not choose to actualize, such as God's desire that all would be saved, but surely the reason cannot be a metaphysical principle in which counterfactuals of creaturely freedom and G are the same and yet different to themselves, and which entail that God cannot be omniscient and yet blind. Number six, the problem of non-redemptive facts. Another problem which flows from the issue of the rhetoric of feasibility is the problem of facts and the actual world that could be non-redemptive in nature. That is, if counterfactuals of creaturely freedom can be used in an ad hoc manner to say that certain kinds of worlds would not be possible for God to actualize, i.e. possible worlds where everything that God desires to come to pass, and if God can only actualize those feasible worlds, then it could also be the, the case that it may, be, it may not be feasible for worlds with sufficiently free and sufficiently numerous agents to also have all of its facts of count, uh, counterfactual facts of creaturely freedom to fall in line with God's sovereign plan or his desire to work all things for the good of those who love him. It may be that in such worlds there would be quote-unquote, unintended artifacts of the volume of free creatures and that quantity of counterfactual, uh, counterfactuals of creaturely freedom, which would in fact be truly gratuitous. This issue of determinism then simply moves back a step. For how could God cause or determine all things to have redemptive value or work for the good of those who love him, while simultaneously not being able to cause or determine the sufficiently free choices of the agents in the actual world? If, as William Lane Craig states, God is merely playing with the cards that he has dealt, maybe there is no feasible world in which sufficiently free creatures will all choose things which God can work into his redemptive plan, and as such, we would have truly gratuitous evils in the world. That seems to be a real problem. What confidence then could the believer have that all things really are ordered for the good of those who love God? If the sinful rejection of God is precisely an undesired artifact of any sufficiently free world, for this is just is the assumption being defended by the feasibility objection and is needed for number seven above, then what confidence can we have that those sinful rejections of God or other sinful, evil, or harmful free will actions of any person in the actual world for that matter are either to our good or serve any kind of sovereign redemptive purpose whatsoever? 
why should the Molinist assume that a world where God already cannot get the will that he desires, universal salvation, due to libertarian free will, that God will get all else that he desires, for all things to work together for the good of those who love him, without any or even most of those free actions being gratuitous actions of actualizing just such a world with sufficiently free moral agents? It seems that any answer to this appears to be grossly self-serving and without any warrant from within the Molinistic system because it would need to rely on some principle of predestination or causation which is antithetical to the feasibility objection used to make the case to begin with. Number seven, causation from creation. Imagine a scenario in which I know with certainty the following three things. Number one, I know that if I push a red button, that it will set a chain of events in motion that will weakly cause someone in the world to freely choose to commit murder in the next hour, not via compulsion, but via their free choice to do so. Number two, that if I push a green button, that this will set a chain of events that will weakly cause the prevention of anyone from freely choosing murder, not via restraint, but via their free choices not to do so. Finally, I know that which button I choose is the only thing that sets either chain of events in motion. Now also imagine I have unalterably chosen to press one of these buttons. It seems an obvious and principled fact that at any time of my knowledge of one or two, prior to pressing either buttons, I have true counterfactual knowledge, but I have not caused anything. I can know that, quote, if red, then murder, and equally, if green, then not murder. My knowledge is causally effete prior to the subsequent, prior and subsequent to pressing either button. However, once I press the button, I am certainly the determining causal factor, having pressed the button which will actualize one and only one foreknown outcome. This is a clear example of weakly determining the outcome and yet still causally determining the outcome while maintaining the free agency and moral culpability of the affected agents. Another example could be given that is directly drawn from Molinism. Imagine two almost identical worlds, W1 and W2. They are identical in every single way except at T1 where in W1 John freely chooses to have some thought P where P's coming in and out of existence in the mind of John has zero impact on any other propositional fact for before any, or any time after T1. But in W2, John simply does not have thought P. We'll call the single variable difference between W1 and W2 asterisks. Now, God, via middle knowledge, would know the true propositions if I actualize W1 then at T1, John will freely choose to think P, but P will have no impact on anything following T1. And if I actualize W2, then at T1, John will not think P. As well as, besides asterisk, there are no differences between W1 and W2. Let us also, for the sake of simplicity, assume that either W1 or W2 could be the actual world, such that God's final decision of what world to actualize comes down to the difference in the asterisks between W1 and W2. So the question is, once God in fact actualizes W1 or W2, is he causally determinative over which side of the asterisks is actualized? 
Surely the answer is yes. The worlds are identical, with the one exception being asterisks. And it is the metaphysical reality of actualizing W1 or W2 that is the sole determining factor in the realization of which side of asterisk is actualized, since in all other respects, at all points in time leading up to T1, W1, and W2 are identical. This then can be extrapolated out to all other events in the given world, including the actions of substantively free creatures that given events X at any time for any world are thus at least secondarily weakly determined by God's strong accusation of that world, though they may be providentially brought about by indirect actions within the world. Those facts about that world cannot be altered simply to support a Molinistic rejoinder, for it is those facts which precisely make it that world that God actualized and not some other world. Like the problem of feasibility above, the Molinist may not alter facts of a possible world in order to escape the possibility of that specific possible world without, in an ad hoc manner, saying that that world is not identical with itself, nor is what God knows or even actualizes about that world identical with itself. This means that God's strong actualization of the world any world, would constitute a form of determinism and would undermine our confidence in a system which affirms true libertarian freedom. Number eight, the ability to act contrary to foreknowledge. Given the problems raised above in five through seven, the last three sections, concerning the actualization within Molinism, the issue of human freedom is to act contrary to God's foreknowledge arises. If one has true libertarian freedom, then nothing constrains the decision that one makes, not even their nature, desires, preferences, history, context, etc. Their decisions are without any causally determining conditions. It cannot be determined by any factor prior to and at the time of decision, one must be able to, in actual fact, choose to do otherwise. Without going into the numerous nuances of various libertarian views and why an overwhelming majority of philosophers and theologians reject them and opt for some version of compatibilism, here I would simply note the incoherence that such a position creates. We can observe this by asking the question, can a libertarian free agent actually choose to act contrary to what God foreknew would happen prior to actualizing the world? If God knew that in A, P would choose X at T1, then at T1, could P actually choose not P? That is, would God's knowledge err? This does not ask the question that assumes God's foreknowledge of P choosing X causes, P to choo causes him to choose X. I can concede that God's foreknowledge would be causally a feat. The problem is that on the libertarian free will view, the clear answer must be logically yes. For P to have genuine libertarian free will, P must be able to choose other than X at T1 without any condition determining P's choice. Let me also add that I'm not making a modal fallacy as many will try to accuse. I'm not saying that P will necessarily choose X given God's foreknowledge. In fact, this becomes part of the problem. P does not need to choose X. Ultimately, the point is that on libertarianism, especially under Molinism, the answer to the question seems to be unavoidably yes, he can choose different than what God foreknew. 
If the Molinist wants to de deny number seven above, then the free agent at T1 could choose on a whim to do X or not X. Yet, God would have actualized this world based on a specific set of facts about this world that makes it this world and not another. As we saw above with the red and green buttons, while God's foreknowledge may not be causally determinative, surely the act of actualizing which creation he chooses is determinative. And yet the Molinist denies that which entails that nothing constrains or determines in any way, primarily or secondarily through means, the free will actions of personal agents. This means that God's free knowledge of the actual world could only be provisional. At T1, John may choose W, which God foreknew, but he may choose not W, which God did not foreknow. This is certainly a possibility unless the Molinist wants to claim that John necessarily chooses W, which they clearly cannot and maintain their view of libertarian freedom. Even if God's foreknowledge is correct 100% of the time, it is inexplicable why God is right 100% of the time because at any moment, any agent could freely choose something different than what God foreknew, and God would not foreknow that because it would be categorically something God did not know. This kind of providential, sorry, provisional grounding problem of Molinism I take to be a different kind of grounding problem than the ones above dealing with God's middle knowledge and God's aseity. Here, this expands the grounding problem even to God's free knowledge. However, there is a problem even more severe than this when we consider just what position this apes. This kind of ungrounded free knowledge becomes nearly indistinguishable from open theism. For even if God was right 100% of the time, he could not possibly know that he would be right 100% of the time. With each free decision of man, as history unfolds, God would have his free knowledge confirmed to him in actual fact. That is, God would learn that his free knowledge of the facts of free choices in the actual world was in fact true, and that at every instant every person did choose in line with what God foreknows with, before actualizing the world, and even in the moments leading up to the decision. For if it is possible for someone to choose something other than what God foreknew, God could in principle, never foreknow in which worlds someone would choose other than what God foreknew, because categorically, he couldn't know that. So the proposition of God's knowledge would quite literally be confirmed to him with each subsequent free will decision. This, I take it, to be one of the most severe problems of Molinism. If this objection holds, then one of the implications of Molinism just is the heretical position of open theism and would render it a heretical system of doctrine. Number nine, the unevangelized transworld depravity and the nature of man. One strategy common among Molinists is to affirm the hybridization of Plantinga's hypothetical transworld depravity employed by William Lane Craig to answer the supposed problem of the unevangelized. Briefly, the problem of the unevangelized is a specific issue for those who hold to a libertarian uh, free will view of human freedom in conjunction with the belief that God only desires regarding the eternal state of humanity is for universal salvation. That is, that God is a hopeful universalist. 
This, however, generates a problem. Why would God create a world where so many are apparently damned by accidents of time and geography? Or, to put it another way, why create a world where so many millions or billions of persons lived in times and places in the world history that where, uh, sorry, where there are completely absent of the message of the gospel of Jesus if God's overriding desire is for the salvation of all humanity? Such a world seems shamefully wasteful and a huge swath of humanity would be lost. The answer given by William Lane Craig and others of this variety is that it may be the case, William Craig, Lane Craig and others are by no means dogmatic about this, but it may be the case that those humans that lived outside of the reach of salvation, so to speak, could be those humans that are trans-world depraved. That is, that there is no possible world in which those persons would ever have freely chosen God and be saved. Now, before answering, I want to again preface that this view is not universal or necessary to Molinists or Molinism. However, due to his influence, William Lane Craig's argument does seem to have become pervasive in Molinistic thinking, and as such, benefit number nine, supposed above, concerning the problem of the unevangelizing, is often attributed as an advantage of Molinism proper. Yet, I would not want those Molinists who know that it is not an inextricable tenet of Molinism to object, thinking that I believe that this topic is attributable to all Molinists or even the core propositions of Molinism. However, since it is popular, as already stated, a response ought to be given, of which I have three, besides positive arguments for the reform response. First, the response to the unevangelized seems to view human persons as a kind of static entity, a kind of static being, that I could be born anywhere at any time in history, that if I was placed in some other historical context, say, third century Alexandria, that God would know uh, how I would act. The argument seems to rely on an idea that we humans are like pieces on a board that God could pick up and move whenever and wherever he would like in a creation without substantively altering or changing one person into another or simply not that person. I don't understand how this would be possible such that there is even an I if I was born in a different time and place to different parents and so on. Surely I would be a completely different person with different genetics, different worldviews, and different upbringing and experiences, different in both nature and nurture. Thus, my first objection is I simply and fundamentally have a hard time even conceptualizing the metaphysics of the anthropology of this view. Second, this position also appears to assume that God was constrained by a specific and certain set of these static human chess pieces. This position raises the natural question— if it was the case that those static humans wouldn't believe in any context, why create them at all? Once again, surely there's a logically possible near-infinite number of both trans-world depraved and trans-world righteous humans that God could have created if they can be merely shifted around the board in such a manner. For whatever benefit trans-world depravity may serve, it seems directly counterbalanced and offset by the equally logically possible set of trans-world righteous believers who would turn in repentance and faith in God in all possible worlds. In fact, if the objections I presented to the feasibility argument above are sound, then it could be possible for God to create only trans-world righteous humans who would believe in any context, 
which would serve as an argument that G above is strictly logically possible and feasible if the Molinist wants to argue that creating a world with trans, uh, with trans world depraved is strictly logically possible and feasible since they would have the same metaphysical warrant. Thus, we see the breaking through of my previous objection here. Why not simply create G and have no problem of the unevangelized to begin with? Why not actualize a world with a different set of human chess pieces in which all are trans world righteous? It seems the failure of the feasibility argument is compounded when taken out of the abstract and examined in this kind of applied scrutiny. Third, I simply see no biblical warrant for holding such a view. I think this view of humanity as a kind of almost platonic, almost pagan notion of human chess pieces on a board for God to move around to try to get the best outcome he can is disastrously deficient view and out of chord with the view of both God's sovereignty and the nature of man found in the Bible. Number 10, compatibilism through and through. Here, I'll obviously not have enough space to develop the issue, but I argue that in order to make mere Molinism work, mere Molinists such as Stratton have had to abandon pure libertarian freedom and adopted limited libertarian freedom, which is, to be honest, hardly distinguishable from compatibilism, though Stratton and others disagree. When one looks at how Stratton has defined limited libertarian freedom, it's almost perfectly in line with most conceptions of substantive freedom with compatibilistic schemes. For theistic compatibilism, typically, the idea is that the personal agent is sufficiently free if they have the ability to choose otherwise, but that in God giving them their nature, dispositions, desires, i.e. their natures, that they always choose in line with their greatest desires and as God has designed and decreed them to do. Thus, God, the author of the nature, determines the outcome by establishing and creating their complete constitution, but that the personal agent is sufficiently and substantively free, and more importantly, morally responsible, given that they still choose by their own volition what they truly desire to do. When Stratton thus defines libertarian, uh, limited libertarian freedom as the ability to choose consistent with one's nature, the only thing missing is that one's nature is the contextual cocktail from which the greatest desire is poured and acted upon, and that this nature is a God-given nature. This means that soft determinism, i.e. weak actualization, is accomplished and thus God can meticulously determine every free will decision of humanity in a way that upholds and is thus compatible with our choice to do as we please. Effectively, in Stratton's attempt to distill Molinism down to mere Molinism to make it more palatable to the Reformed, he's effectively must abandon the view of the will as having libertarian freedom in the classical sense, which is one of the core things that makes Molinism distinctive and ostensibly potentially useful in favor of a truncated kind of natural compatibilism. The real problem, however, as already shown above but more expressly stated now, is not that Stratton must abandon the historic defense of libertarian freedom advocated by Molinists, but that he likely sees the writing on the wall. Molinism, when taken to its logical end, entails a form of compatibilism anyway. And as I already argued above, in a more fully articulated form of Molinism, the result of God's actualization of the world and the determinative nature of it mentioned in number seven above where for God to actualize a world just is a causal determination of all true facts in the world, results in the need for some form of compatibilism. 
This again entails that one of the suspend, supposed unique benefits of Molinism to theology and apologetics, that it protects limit, uh, libertarian freedom and provides a unique synthesis of God's sovereignty and human freedom responsibility, becomes effectively nil. It ends up in the same place as other systems, but just does so via a convoluted metaphysics coupled with the potential abandonment of biblical orthodoxy with respect to the aseity of God, the omniscience of God, the nature of man, and the plan of salvation, if it steps into the discussion of the order salutis and the ability to possess or exhibit faith apart from the providential regeneration, regenerative act of the Holy Spirit. Number 11. Supposed benef Biblical Support for Molinism there are a set of supposed proof texts of Molinism that are statements of mere counterfactuals, which the Molinist will often attempt to claim demonstrate, or at least support, a Molinistic view of God's middle knowledge. I think that rather than supporting Molinism, these texts go to show a glaring example of eisegesis and the, and the historic Protestant and Reformed views of God's free knowledge explain them just as well without the need for the invention of a third species of knowledge or the advancement of the problematic system shown above. The three major texts are Matthew 11, 21 to 24, 1 Corinthians 2, 7 to 8, and 1 Samuel 23, 11 to 13, where each text supposedly expresses some piece of counterfactual knowledge. The strongest example appears to be the narrative of Deva and the men of Cala in 1 Samuel 23. Without going into a full summary of the passage, here David seeks counsel from the Lord of what would happen if he chooses to go to one city compared to what would happen if he chooses not to go. God tells him what would happen, and this informs David's decision to do otherwise. I do not think that a full exegetical response is even necessary here to show the problem with the Molinist view which claims that this demonstrates or specifically supports middle knowledge in any particular way. The absolute most that this shows is that God has counterfactual knowledge. Yet this kind of exhaustive counterfactual knowledge as shown above is not only extant on historic Protestant and Reformed understandings of the admissions of God. But if the above arguments hold, is better explained, explained on those views. Like the countless passages used to try to show libertarian freedom, but which really just express in instances of substantive free choice apart from any metaphysical explanation, a position affirmed by compatibilist Calvinists and libertarians alike, so too these passages cannot go to specifically support Molinism any more than they do any other view which holds to the omniscience of God, which would include exhaustive counterfactual knowledge. Even that is the most it could do. However, the fact of the matter is that the mere statement of a counterfactual hardly can be used to demonstrate conclusively anything more than the usage of counterfactual language and rhetoric. Not only can we as limited humans have true counterfactual knowledge without middle knowledge being attributed to us, for example, I can know all things being equal if I can never consume any food or water that I would not live another five years. But the proclamations in Matthew and 1 Corinthians especially seem to be basic exaggerative rhetorical flourishes, more so than attempts to make nuanced and theologically robust statements of metaphysically veridical counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. I could think of examples where, in exasperation, one might say, if my dog could speak English, they would understand this better than you. Should we envisage that person as 
consciously attempting to make veridical statements of what really would happen in another possible world? Of course not. This kind of hyperbolic language is common and easily understood as rhetoric used to, just to draw extreme contrast. Attempts to shoehorn a fully formed Molinism or middle knowledge into such statements found in Matthew and 1 Corinthians seem quite the eisegetical stretch to me. Number 12, Molinism and the presumption of libertarianism. Here, I would simply observe that in my countless conversations, when push comes to shove, many Molinists will show their true underlining theological commitments and fall back on the attempted preservation of man's freedom as priority and will make the affirmation of the that's not fair objection of the Romans 9 interlocutor. If we cannot resist God's will, then it would not be fair of him to find us at fault. Now, I don't claim or even think this is indicative of all Molinists or that it's somehow a sine qua non of Molinism or any kind of official Molinistic strategy but rather it simply does constitute a large contingent of those Molinists who are vocal in debates. They will, more often than not, in my experience, come from a position where they view any form of determinism, compatibilistic or otherwise, to be unfair, and thus seek to find any way to justify their philosophical pre-commitment to specifically libertarian free will and find what they are looking for in Molinism. This, I admit, does not mean Molinism is right or wrong, reasonable or irrational, or rather it should not be ignored that often certain level of bias drives exegetical, philosophical, and theological methodology. I am one of the, the furthest people from those who disparage philosophy, and I think it is self-evidently true that philosophy does in many ways necessarily constitute some of the boundaries for all good theology biblical interpretation, and really any other human thought process uh, and, and the way thought progresses and forms. Yet, I would say that in instances like this one, it does appear that a certain philosophical position or prejudice for a particular position and belief is used as a controlling factor in how the Molinist does their biblical and systematic theology. That is, rather than allowing their biblical theology to inform their view of human will and moral responsibility, the nature and sovereignty of God and how he exercises that sovereignty in creation, they will take purely philosophical considerations of the human will and moral responsibility that they hold as foundational apart from the scriptures and then go to the text to find the best readings to fit within that paradigm. That is backwards. This is likely to be one of the most contentious issues because it does not drive because it does drive at motivations, albeit more likely subconscious than overt or intentional. And so I left it to almost the end uh, as almost an end note. Whether or not this is true of some or any Molinist does not validate or invalidate my arguments above, nor does it prove or disprove Molinism. It merely is a cautionary note to those who seek to wade into these often contentious debates to be aware of what entrenched presuppositions may be at play. Number 13. Que bono. We can now step back and see the landscape of the Molinistic position to see what is left in its wake and what ground it has gained. It seems to me that Molinism does not deliver on a single one of its promises, and even if it did, it does so at an unacceptable cost of divine sovereignty which succumbs to man's true freedom, 
undermines the aseity of God, calls into question God's how not God's knowledge is grounded, removes the Christian confidence in the redemptive value of every instance of evil in the world, and still ends with a quasi-compatibilistic system despite setting out to defend libertarianism. In fact, mere Molinists like Stratton will even make moves to rescue the system and allow in Reformed believers by saying that it may be the case that God does circumvent the, the free will of man in salvation, and as such, Molinism would not be in conflict with Reformed or Calvinistic soteriology. Notice, however, that this jettisons the entire supposed Molinistic value of explaining why the world is the way it is and why it's not maximally salvific, if that was God's desire. That is, if God desires for all to be saved, and if Molinism is altered to allow for a volition uh, for a violation of their theory of libertarian free will to save the elect in order to let the Calvinists in, then the Molinist is now stuck in the same situation that they accuse the Calvinists of, but with none of the theological resources to provide a better solution. Now, God could have supervened on the will of all humanity and would have been justified in doing so to bring about the salvation of every person, which was his ostensible desire. If God can do it with some, it becomes inexplicable on Molinism why he could not do it with all. On Reformed theology, there are concepts such as the two wills of God, providence and divine decrees, the glory of God that comes from wrath and justice, the total depravity of man, such that even universal reprobation would be just and fair, and so on and so forth, to explain why God does not do this. But on mere Molinism, or even on more robust Molinism, the reason for why God does not do this, if he could, as Stratton allows, becomes utterly inexplicable and puts forth no viable answer to the problem of evil. That is, it gives up the very apologetical value which nearly all of the advocates claim for itself. The question then becomes, which the Molin, uh, becomes why the Molinists will jettison to avoid the horns of the dilemma. Stratton's compromise on soteriology or Molinism and middle knowledge itself. At the end of the day, Molinism ends up with a God who learns, who is not ultimately sovereign, who is contingent upon his own creation, which may not or may not be con uh, created yet, who cannot guarantee that all things have ultimately redemptive value rather than being merely gratuitous, with static human chess pieces, etc., and lands with a deficient, truncated form of compatibilism compared to the more robust forms developed within the Reformed framework. There seems to be no benefit to any party from adopting the theory. It's all cost and no reward. Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or I'm sure I'll get a lot of condemnations from this episode, please feel free to email me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast at blogspot.com or visit the Freedthinker group page on Facebook. Thank you again. Good night and God bless.